Malcolm Honline is executive vice chairman of the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations. Joins us Fridays for the weekly update at JM and the AM. Mr. Honline, welcome back to JM and the AM. Always a pleasure. Well, even on rainy days. Yeah. <laughs> the big number is out. It's 4919. 499, or as they say in Israel, 9419. It'll be the 9th of April when Israelis go to the polls and Election Day has been set. It's about three months from now. The campaign, if anybody's paying attention, has already begun in earnest. Uh, what can we look forward to over the next three months, Mr. Online? Campaigning. And a lot of it. <laughs> and a lot, exactly. Endless. It's, uh, as you know, the Israeli um, political scene is very volatile. And despite the fact that Netanyahu remains the favorite uh, to be prime minister, you know, there are a lot of weaknesses in the numbers that he has. And, you know, you, you traditionally see these flash in a pan candidates who come out with big numbers and predictions that they would get 10, 15, 18, 12 uh, mandates. Um, and in fact, they dissipate over time as the public gets exposed when they have to uh, compete against one another. The real key is whether the a, a significant coalescence of opposition groups, you know, we see Benny Gantz, a former chief of staff who, who came out and is now seen as very charismatic. He's just, I, I know him well, he's a very good guy, but he, I don't know that he's charismatic or um, uh, as described, but uh, Benny um, Boogie Alom, the former minister of defense and chief of staff, uh, and Barack, former Minister of Defense and Prime Minister and Chief of Staff. So the generals are coming out and, and running and right now dominating the coverage. But, you know, that will change with time. And uh, people will have to make very serious decisions in the election in Israel right now, given the external and internal uh, challenges, uh, will be is a very serious one. Even if people, you know, make light and you see all the jokes that have come out already about it, and um, there doesn't appear to be an individual around whom everybody uh, will coalesce or or could agree to to a division, would be more likely a uh, combination of parties that would um, uh, try to form a government if if they can get the numbers necessary to challenge. Right now, Likud still is the number one party. Um, to uh, already it seems so, and who can blame him? Uh, the prime minister, it seems, is doubling down on the security issue. But again, who can blame him? It's essentially the issue that's won him every election in the past. And you know, some of us on this side of the world um, may look at things skeptically, like you know, <laughs> the electorate obviously changes, the composition of the electorate uh, obviously changes in Israel. Obviously, it gets younger, newer voters get into the system, especially. A whole four or almost a whole four years later, one would think that these same issues that attracted, uh, you know, the population to a certain candidate back then, years ago, wouldn't be the same today. But in Israel, it's different. In Israel, it all comes down to, you know, surviving the next day, literally being protected, having security on the borders and within Israel itself. I guess no one can question or or blame him. I keep using the expression "blame him" for using that as the number one issue. Well, for one, there are very legitimate and real challenges right now, um, and 
the um, the other issue is the economy, and the fact is that Netanyahu can point to having stabilized uh, the economy, and um, I think that the um, one has to look at the totality of issues and challenges, uh, given what's happening in Syria, what's happening in Lebanon, what's happening in Gaza, what's happening with Iran, what's happening with Turkey, the instability growing out of the Gulf, and what happened with Saudi Arabia, uh, the mercurial relationship sometimes with the United States, even though it remains so strong and, and positive. And the impression is he's the one who deals with all this the best. And that, exactly, that, but he can show that, at least on right. the economic front, while so many countries have gone through very difficult circumstances, uh, they remain, the Israeli economy remains strong. Uh, there are people who may challenge um, aspects of it, but I, I think that they would all agree that it remains very strong right now. And um, so you have the economic issues, right. but then you also have the corruption issues, the, the legal cases against Netanyahu and what happens if an indictment comes down and there are some you know, exchanges this week regarding yeah. the attorney general. Not not just, not just speculation, but reality that this really could be right in the middle of the campaign. Right. And there were some exchanges between Netanyahu and the attorney general, who's right. his appointee right. and a wonderful guy. Uh, but they don't like each other. Well, it's become very contentious, I would say. Right. Uh, if someone gets up at a Q&A and, and, and asks you the following general question, is this the best that, is this the strongest Israeli economy in the 70-year history of the country? What do you answer? Israel's economy continues to grow, and it's based on the on the high tech. It's based on um, some steps that Netanyahu, when he was uh, finance minister, took. People credit with him, credit but, him with it. There are those who um, who would say that uh, you know this is it's it's uh, not as real as it appears. There are still I don't know a half a million people living below the poverty level or more, uh, many children who go to bed hungry at night, that this is an intolerable situation as well. But the um, overall, look at it, the, the growth continues at a remarkable rate. In that foreign investment continues at a remarkable rate. Tourism reaches new highs. I mean, it just, it, it, he can point to a lot of successes and, and uh, the stability of, of economic growth uh, unemployment is uh, is very low. Uh, I think that there are a lot of positive signs, and certainly it's the strongest economy in 70 years as Israel matures. And people have predicted, you know, that the startup nation would be a flash in a pan, that you can't sustain it. Right. Well, they've sustained it for a long time, and we see the new startups continuing and uh, massive sales, uh, you know, multi-billion dollar buys and, and many other companies that go for less. Uh, so right now, that I don't think anybody could say that this is going to stop now. All right, but, so it's, it's no stretch to say it's, and, it's and a strong... And the discovery of oil so it's no... also makes Israel more independent. The fact that they're water independent, the fact that you know more and more countries are, are seeking ties with Israel, and while the BDS step stuff gets a lot of attention, the fact is that African, Asian, and other countries are expanding their ties with Israel all the time. Right. So it is. It, it is hard to argue that today it is not the strongest economy it's ever been, or the strongest, uh, um, yeah, strongest economy it has been in the seventy-year history of the country, which is unbelievable. If you think back, not just 
uh, the flash in the pan predictions. But if you think back just 20, 30 years in terms of the a daily struggle of you know keeping up with the economy being completely out of control and inflation being completely out of control in Israel, people in that era would not believe that Israel would have gotten to this point. Now, of course, as we always point out, they're so strong that the leaders of other nations are coming to you know beg Israel for the technology, their know-how, and to actually buy Israeli companies that are that are behaving in a very strong economic fashion as well. So the whole thing is just amazing. Uh, what effect will the resignation of Danny Danone from the U.N. have on the Israeli election? Well, it will have uh, an impact on his election campaign, but uh, I don't think that it it is a dramatic impact. He will be a factor in running um, in the in the Likud primary, which will be held at the end of this of month of uh, January. Uh, so we're going to see a lot of people emerge. Um, in all the parties, by the way, because they'll all hold primaries. Uh, there are people whose uh, names have just come out, of people who, who are becoming candidates, Olim and others. It'll be very interesting to watch. The question with unknown to me that's bigger is, will, will they be able to name a replacement? Because I don't think that while the Knesset is out, they, they can appoint a permanent replacement, maybe an interim one, maybe as a deputy who can take over, but I think that you can't have a vacancy for this longer period in, in a critical time in the United Nations. We also have a new U.S. ambassador. But you can't meaning you don't recommend it, or you can't meaning rules of the U.N.? Not U.N., rules of the Israel. Oh, rules of Israel. They wouldn't be right. able to do it. it oh, well, that, I, that's what I was told, but I have to. we have to verify it. The problem is that there's nobody to verify it, but... <laughs> you know, when somebody told me that you can have a meeting of the cabinet in a telephone booth because the defense minister, foreign minister, prime minister, health minister, all can get it at one time. Wait a minute. Let me just tell our young listeners what a telephone booth is. Just give me a second. Yeah, right. um, yeah, that's pretty funny. I saw a chart on Facebook that outlined, you know, the top positions in, you know, in five countries, for instance. And, you know, obviously every one of the top ten positions are different people and pictures for each country, and you get to Israel with the same picture for all ten. <laughs> so I know exactly what you mean. It's hilarious, frankly. I don't know. Is, is it funny or not? I don't know. You know, there's some people writing that Israel recommended to Donald Trump in Washington to leave Syria. I, I saw a lot of these reports. Um, there are people writing now why it's beneficial. Right. Look, time will tell whether any of this is uh, the speculation is true. I doubt very much that Israel suggested that they pull out of this area. Um, some say that this will put the onus on the Turks, that they will have to uh, clean up or the, or the Russians against the Iran. I think a lot of this um, is, uh, is, is speculation and an attempt to try to explain or understand what happened and why the decision which seemed to be a very uh, seemed to be quickly made although everybody's talked about talk you know bringing troops home you're talking about 2000 troops who played a critical role in blocking the Iranian aspiration to build the corridor through Iraq Syria and Lebanon and certainly the supply routes and the question of what happens to the Kurds and with the Turks mobilizing troops on the border, and um, now the Syrian army took uh, Manjib, the, the critical Kurdish uh, city. Um, it, you know, it does shift the onus and, and does cause disruption within some of the forces in Syria. Uh, but 
I doubt very much that Israel at this time wanted to see the U.S., that the message that we send and the message to our allies, the message to our friends, to Christians, to others in Syria and the Kurds in particular who have been the best fighters and and, uh, allies with the U.S. in the war against ISIS in particular. Yeah, and you just mentioned the, uh, obviously this is the week where a lot of people are analyzing the the global Christian community, and there are predictions about, literally a prediction that you published in the um, in the daily alert uh, where the Archbishop of Canterbury says Christians are on the brink of extinction in the Middle East and for those who think that's a dramatic statement you know meant to wake people up I, I don't know if it's as dramatic as it is accurate would you agree uh, I yeah, I don't think it's a prediction I think it's a description right and um, the the it is subject that you know I have discussed here many times yep. and, and elsewhere trying to call attention to the the situation of Christians in the Middle East, where thousands are killed every year, maybe tens of thousands, and certainly displaced the populations, the Christian population of Iraq is about half of what it was in other countries as well, Syria certainly. And, and, you know, life for many of them has become much more difficult. There's forced conversion, there's uh, expulsion, there's murder. uh, And uh, unfortunately, the world takes very little notice uh, of uh, of this, and in regard to other minorities as well, uh, they, you know, we speak up when the Yazidis and many others came under persecution. But you don't see leaders of other religious groups and do, doing what they should in order to call attention to this. Uh, I mean, to the tragic plight of these people. Yeah, and uh, you know, selfishly, one you know, one might say in terms of Israel and the Jewish people, uh, with the influence that that Christianity has worldwide, it is likely a good idea for us to do whatever possible to align with them and to, uh, you know, and to help these communities. Um, and that, and as you just said, it's funny how Israel and our community in general, you know, reaches out to, to certain either underprivileged or, you know, those communities in need, right. Right. Threatened communities. When it comes to the Christians though, it always seems to be different. It's interesting you point that, unless the impression always is as you know, as often we, uh, you know, the, as often as the um, the default in Jewish history that we simply just never look at the Christian community. We know the clear. Iranians arrested at least 150 Christians right. uh, for Christmas because they don't want to have celebrations and prosecute people in Arab countries for having uh, public displays or or uh, manifestations. Um, I know that in, in Gaza, for instance, the uh, Al-Nasar Salah al-Din brigades, which is the third biggest group uh, after uh, Hamas and uh, Pij, uh, Islamic Jihad, uh, warned people and threatened them, forbidding the celebration of, of Christmas. And we know that Christmas trees and other things were, were, were desecrated in different places. And they were on arresting all these people, and yet the, the reaction to it is, is minimal. Yeah. It's unbelievable. When we were, why aren't there demonstrations? Why aren't there people screaming and yelling about um, uh, about about this roundup? And when the Archbishop of Canterbury's uh, comments, uh, he talked about the hundreds of thousands forced from their homes, the the, the numbers that were killed, the churches that were taken over, the um, uh, and the the change in demographics, but they. Um, and, and especially ISIS and other groups, you know, carrying out public executions with minimal uh, outcry. 
Do you think there's a hesitancy on Israeli and Jewish leadership to speak out on this, or is it more that our impression is that they have a very effective global leadership um, uh, system, and, and therefore the, the the Christians don't need us as much as as some of the more underprivileged groups do? Well, first of all, we have spoken out, and we speak out frequently on the Christian um, the persecution of Christians. The problem is then people uh, there say, well, see, it's the Jews who are manipulating them. Right. So we don't want to do anything that further endangers them, and so often we'll speak out, but without uh, publicly using uh, the Jewish community name. or And that might even include Israeli leadership. They would do the same. They'd behave in the same way. With, with restraint, but they have. Again, right. they too have spoken out, and right. they have... Uh, reached out, and you know what they did in Syria, uh, but didn't discriminate against Muslims who came for treatment, but particularly there was an outreach to Christian communities, um, and there is aid that goes in to to uh, people, but again, I think it's in a non-discriminatory basis. Uh, yeah, I think the Israelis know that the um, uh, that becoming too vocal could be could backfire. It's America's one and only Jewish moments in the morning radio program heard on listener-sponsored digital radio. Around the world on the web at NachumSiegel.com, the NachumSiegel Network, and of course on the beloved NSN app. Malcolm Honline is Executive Vice Chairman of the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations. I remind everybody, as you hear this conversation every week with very, very little interruption, uh, that we ask you to sponsor our broadcast and to keep us going. The uh, 2018 campaign, for obvious reasons, is coming to an end on Monday. And we ask if uh, those of you who have not yet contributed this year, please support us as best you can. FJBUnity.org, FJB for Foundation for Jewish Broadcasting, FJBUnity.org. This question comes from a listener, Malcolm. The Jerusalem Post reports that HSBC Bank is divesting from the Israeli company Elbit. Since HSBC operates in New York State and other states with anti-BDS laws, is there anything that you could recommend uh, we do? Uh, to rectify the situation? Well, it is a situation that has occupied me this morning. For some time, I've been in touch with HSBC officials, uh, one in particular who is a good friend and a great person, uh, and uh, unfortunately is traveling, but they did respond and said this is not BDS-related, and I hope by uh, Sunday um, and latest Monday we'll have much more information. Um, it is very disturbing Regardless, the, whether divesting uh, under the guise of response, corporate responsibility, whatever human rights, that Elbit sells drones and drones are used in, in various situations, police, etc., actions. It is the it is one the, um, the declarations by the BDS that this was a victory for them, implying that they were involved. Uh, which may or may not be true. You know, they do take credit for stuff that they they didn't do, and this could be a corporate decision based on some other considerations. Uh, We don't know how much they actually invested. It's it's not a divestment from Israel. It's a divestment from a particular company. Nonetheless, it's the cumulative effect of of, um, Airbnb, which we continue to fight and which we will continue. And there was a lot of confusion this week, if I can just Sure. because it's a related question about, mm-hmm. uh, and I've gotten many, about what actually the status with Airbnb is. And the fact is that, that Airbnb officials visited Israel. Um, the minister of tourism with whom they met then issued a statement saying that they were going to rescind the policy. And their local spokesperson in Israel issued a statement to that effect. Uh, and, and Airbnb then said, we never said that. We're not the 
We're not reversing our policy. We are going to invest in Israel. We want to do more business in Israel, but we have not said that we're going to reverse it. I think that they would like to find some way to climb down uh, and that we should give them as many ladders as possible. But at the same time, they have to be called out for what they did and for for the fact that they are not changing the policy and and chose in a discriminatory manner one place, one area. And uh, and again, it's not the economic impact so much as it is the precedent that is set. And then people will see HSBC as furthering that precedent, regardless of what their corporate in, in intentions were. And we will clarify all of that and send out information. I sent a memo to all of the organizations yesterday about the Airbnb and clarifying and saying we have to keep the pressure up. We have to have people who use Airbnb call them and tell them we're not going to use it anymore. We need the states that um, have passed BDS legislation to speak out and to let them know that uh, their IPO in the spring, planned public offering by Airbnb, uh, that the states are going to are not going to be able to invest in all the state pension plans, et cetera. The uh, and HSBC, where many people have accounts and many people do business through HSBC, it's the I think the seventh largest bank in the world, um, have to let them know what the consequences of this are, even while we're clarifying the facts. And I hope um, that we can provide you and everyone else with the information. You, you know, we have to be careful when running into it because not every press report, as we know, is true. And uh, so we're ascertaining the facts at the same time. HSBC has to hear from us. The media have to hear from us about why this is unacceptable and what this precedent leads to, and that that it is in fact picking uh, one company, unless they, you know, listing every company that makes drones in, in the whole world, and anybody who makes any other equipment used by uh, police or army uh, forces, uh, and used for for a lot of good. I mean, as well. Uh, drones serve uh, life-saving purposes, also. Yeah, of course. So this is um, as, a, as from the last three hours that I've been working on it. Uh, we will hopefully have some more information by Monday. All right, and I'm sure you'll keep us up to date on that. Satellite images of an Iranian weapons storehouse outside Damascus showed significant damage done to the site. Has Israel taken responsibility for these airstrikes? You mean the former Iranian warehouse? Right. In, oh, it really was significant, <laughs> huh? <laughs> yeah, they, they did a good job on it. And it was probably a rocket storehouse. Wow. Um, and uh, it was quite a, a lively uh, explosion there. Um, it's not a question of who takes credit. I don't think anybody has much doubt. Uh, and today we've seen continuation of the efforts to... to um, closed the tunnels. They, a fifth one was discovered. It went near an, an Arab village in the north. And the, um, today, one of the, the tactics used is that they pour liquid cement into the tunnels. And uh, it flooded one of the Lebanese villages because it, as it flowed through the tunnel, it came up you know, where, where it began, which is probably under someone's home or in a factory or uh, someplace. And the uh, Village, you could see the the flow of the liquid cement coming out of the tunnel, which uh, highlights where it began. Uh, so Israel is very much engaged in countering the tunnels, trying to discover any others that exist. The UNIFIL has not taken on any responsibility to close the tunnels as it should, and no indication that they're going to play a more uh, fulsome role in living up to their mandate. And so it leaves it to Israel to do it, and uh, obviously the. Uh, 
Syria and that past incident with the uh, Russian plane where Israel is striking is not in the area where the Aleutian plane was flying. Uh, Russia or somebody indicated that two Russian planes were endangered during this. Uh, there's no evidence that that uh, was the case. But where, where Israel is flying in the north is not related to those areas. Obviously, there are restrictions and coordination with the Russians or at least uh, being sensitive and being careful not to have an incident again uh, like the one about a month ago. Um, what was the report that Israel has carried out airstrikes on ISIS in Syria and Sinai? This was, and that's referring to a period of years, correct? I assume so. And th- that was only because, I mean, is this, is this news? Is it a, is it a surprise that Israel would have uh, done that in those two locations? So, um, in the Sinai, it would not be a surprise because Israel and Egypt do cooperate. And remember that the ISIS and related to Hamas, their activities, you know, with weapons flow, uh, Iran supplying weapons via ISIS to Gaza. So it could be a defensive actions against uh, weapons that are being shipped into Gaza. Uh, also a part of the cooperation with uh, Egypt. And in uh, in Syria, I would say that it would have to be a particular circumstance where they would intercede, maybe because of the to save Kurds who might have been under siege, or that that's the only rationale that I can think of. Israel has enough to do and and has to be careful with its strikes. Uh, fighting ISIS is everybody's interest, certainly Israel's. So it would be it would not be illogical for those reports to be true. I thought that. Uh... I thought it was a U.S.-based report that was released by Washington to give confidence to those who were upset they were leaving Syria and that ISIS, you know, would, would still have... It was Israel Khan TV that, that released the uh, Right, so it's, not, so it's not a U.S. Uh, source. No. But that would make sense that, they were, that, you know, if it did come from Washington, they were trying to, you know, inject some, uh, some hope and optimism that Israel would be there if ISIS would, you know, at, at any point start up. Uh, that Israel would be there to uh, to protect everybody. That's a good theory, but uh, it didn't, as far as I know, it did not ar- originate and, here. And the strike that I just mentioned uh, in terms of the um, uh, the weapons plant, uh, so there were Hezbollah leaders who were uh, who, who actually were hit during that attack. Well, there there are various reports. Again, it, 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 none of them have been substantiated yet. Whether uh, Hamas leadership, Hezbollah leadership, were targeted. There were some that said that they were getting on a plane, going to Iran, and uh, when Israel struck near the Damascus airport or in that area. Uh, but later there were denials, so I don't have any final confirmation on that. So it's not only where. Israel doesn't just concentrate on where they should strike. They also concentrate on when they should strike. because <laughs> Right there, that those reports did come from the U.S. about um, the, the, the DOD, the Department of Defense, said that several leaders of Hezbollah were reportedly hit in that in that strike. Uh, certainly the ammunition supply points, which we talked about, and where the GPS-guided ammunitions um, uh, were, were manufactured. But uh, uh, the plant that Netanyahu referred to was closed down by them, not hit by Israel, but um, uh, was destroyed by or abandoned by them because they knew that it was going to be a... Uh, that it was a sitting target and that Israel knew about it. And that's when people ask, why does Israel release the information? Because sometimes that then the uh, opposition and enemies do the work for us 
Right. And they abandon the place. And then it also builds up the local opposition who do not want to, you know, see their, their villages leveled or, the, you know, because you have uh, military installations and missiles and other things in the middle. The Netanyahu trip to Brazil for the presidential inauguration was the first time an Israeli prime minister went to Brazil? I think this is the first official visit, certainly in a long time, whether wow. it's the first visit ever it could it could be i mean i saw that report too it just didn't seem so credible yeah go figure that, that in all those years but but remember that that prime ministers of israel rarely visited south america at all netanyahu's now i think this is his second or third visit right uh, and when he visited those other countries they also said that it was the first visit of a israeli uh, prime minister so it could be and, you know, Brazil is an important country, and they're weighing moving their embassy to Jerusalem. Right. And many of our evangelical friends have been very helpful in this, uh, visiting Brazil and talking to the, the new president, who is an evangelical Christian and very strongly seems to believe in the ties uh, with Israel and moving the embassy. That was a campaign promise, was it? Or it was part of his campaign, right? Was it was. It? Right. Um, and I know there was hesitation because, obviously, the reaction once he became, uh, once he, uh, became president-elect. Um, all right, so here's the big question, and this might be, uh, you know, uh, w- w- what I've been asked uh, uh, most this week to ask you, and that is, you know, how dangerous, well, you've described the tunnel, Fifth Tunnel, we understand what's happening up north, we discussed, you know, Israeli action in Syria this week. Uh, we know from all of our previous conversations over the last few weeks what's going on down south, and how the Israeli defense forces are building up, or certainly, at the minimum, keeping a very strong presence on both fronts. With all that in mind, is Israel, in, and this is what people have been asking me to ask you, is Israel in a much more vulnerable position because now they're in campaign mode than if they would have, you know, the regular, stable, you know, daily government attention? So obviously that is in everybody's mind, whether the, an election diverts attention. And the fact is that Israel's been in elections other times when you've had um, security threats and situations uh, that, um, uh, you know, affecting them. So uh, I think they can walk and chew gum. I think Israel's defense people, uh, infrastructure operates independently of the political and supposed to, and by law it's required to act independently, and so they can sustain that throughout the uh, uh, election period. But we, we have to realize, obviously, that people leaders are, are uh, distracted, and when the prime minister is also the defense minister and the foreign minister, so it's a it's a huge burden. He's very capable, but that's a, a lot to carry in a time when you're in the middle of, a, of an election. Yeah, but I think people are asking an even further question, and that is we've seen in the past, as you remember, of course, uh, that the enemy takes advantage to, to remind Israel how vulnerable their security might be during campaigns, and I think that's what what's getting people nervous. Well, that works to Netanyahu's favor, so I'm not sure they want to do things in that favor. We see that in Gaza, there seems to be a de facto ceasefire, right. uh, although, you know, nobody writes about the fact that, that um, uh, and I think the Daily Alert did report it, about the executions that are going on there. They just executed six people, supposedly for collaboration. You don't hear any outcry in the world uh, for that, uh, even though they're signatories to the... Um, the thing about removing the death penalty, the agreement, the international treaty. Um, so, you know, what they do will be more determined, what Hamas and Hezbollah do by their own internal needs, by what Iran 
if Iran wants to step up the pressure and affect the election and do other things, then they can do that through their proxies. But it doesn't appear right now to be in anybody's interest that Hezbollah doesn't want a war. The the um, I don't think Iran wants to challenge Israel directly. You know, after all these sorties that hit their weapons depot and other things, uh, and uh, and Hamas obviously right now is uh, is looking. There's there's talk of elections in the West Bank, which would probably result right now, according to polls, in a Hamas victory. Uh, and so Abbas has no interest in in having an election there. There was talk about city council or council elections, other things. Um, but you know, generally, this is all uh, very uh, speculative. So I think that Israel will, can handle the current situation, uh, and that's why the American announcement, um, anything that contributes to instability, regardless in the long term, as some predict that it'll work to Israel's benefit, the U.S. benefit, the benefit in the situation there, pitting Iran and Turkey and Russians and everybody against each other. Um, I think that the instability that, that it introduces or the questions uh, work against the the interests of the of Israel and our allies. And not to belabor the point, you know, security concerns obviously always help the right, but the enemy has nonetheless used the opportunity to to you know to show its strength in past elections. Even though, again, it would likely help you know the side that they'd prefer not be in office. So. Yeah, they don't always operate on rational grounds right. <laughs> or have their own Hezbollahs. And also it's because there is internal competition. Right, right. Remember, they, you know, right. Hamas needs to stay in public attention. Uh, they all want to stay in public attention if they are going to, um, you know, to win or to maintain public support. And we see Hamas shifting a lot of its activities towards to the West Bank and increasing the uh, incitement and some of the terrorist attacks that are going on there. Uh, and as we talk about April 9th, Election Day, uh, I mean, I guess the analysis could be that essentially Prime Minister Netanyahu wanted to get away from the, you know, the, 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 uh, the precarious, let's put it that way, relatively precarious situation of October-November, and he also did not want to wait all the way until November, especially with the Attorney General breathing down his neck. So he sort of split the difference. He sort of said, you know, let me get away from from what has you know the episode up north October November let me not get too close to the to the likelihood of having um of having legal problems as we get further into 20 into 2019 and he sort of split the difference and said you know what 3 months from now would be a good time with that could could that possibly be a uh, uh an analysis of how he strategically planned this out look it, it there are many factors the internal liquid situation the um giving more time to opposition to build up. Um, you know, he only moved it up by a few months, so it's right. really not a big difference. And Still then half a year, the right? fact that this government lasted uh, the majority of its term, which is yeah. very unusual. The average Israeli government lasts two and a half years. Um, he, um, I think I think he, he feels that right now he's the strongest and waiting can only work against him. And that he said he would like a coalition similar to the one that he has, which is a center-right government. Um, I think that um, you know there were a lot of internal tensions, so he um, 
probably took all of these things into account in, in setting the date, including the investigations, although I don't know directly how they will be impacted. The uh, Supreme Court, there are people who are saying that they will order him to step down if he's indicted. He right. has said that he will not step down if indicted, <laughs> only if convicted, and the um, so that you could end up with a pretty intense political um, battle. Um, and it's interesting to me is that they did it before Pesach, that they moved it to the beginning of April. Most people thought it would be after. Um, and now you have an extended period. It's, it's four, four months of... Uh, yeah, really three, but yeah, you're right. You know, it's pretty... Well, usually you need three months' notice to, right. to call an election, so this is really not much more. Right. Um, but, you know, they have so many challenges. You know, the Palestinians are going to make a move for statehood again at the U.N. We know that they're doing a lot at the International Criminal Court. We see the the instigations and the um, efforts on so many fronts that require a serious effort. And I, I hope that in the new government there will be a foreign minister and that they will bolster the work of the foreign ministry. Um, and, the uh, you know, now those... Those responsibilities are are divided up into different ministries, and um, you know we have to look at the, the whole Hasbara campaign and the greater efforts on on so many fronts. That uh, while Israel is doing generally well, and, uh, we have real challenges here in regard to the public opinion and with the new Congress, with a small, very small, but very vocal and I think potentially dangerous element introduced. Uh, who are vehemently anti-Israel, uh, and the, you know the continuing efforts uh, to to undermine the relationship uh, uh, with Israel. Uh, you know the, the Palestinians were appointed to the to the ICC uh, nominations committee for judges. So I mean, if you talk about putting the wolf in the in the in with the hens. I mean, it's ridiculous, and it's not even a state. So. The putting uh, somebody to the advisory committee on nominations uh, is, um, you know, really uh, it, it is as ridiculous as it is potentially oh. discomforting. Excellent. Uh, Malcolm, thank you so much. Have a wonderful Shabbos. We'll speak again in 2019 next week. God willing. <laughs> so the big answer is now we all have to get ready for Pesach. You can join us in Puerto ah, Vallarta. Puerto Vallarta. Uh, <laughs> or somewhere, but just think it's not that long. I know. Elections and then. And we sit down to the Seder and discuss the elections. That's right. That's why he did it. <laughs> All right. Have a wonderful Shabbos. There he is, Malcolm Online, Executive Vice Chairman, Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations, Friday morning here at JM in the AM. If you have not yet supported us during 2018, please do so. Keep us going. We just did a nonstop, commercial-free, 38 minutes with Malcolm Holmline that we do every week. And I thank him, by the way. I thank him. He's, you know, pe- people think that we, we hire him to do this. He actually is one of our supporters. So he gets the importance of of this forum and everybody getting together on a Friday to do this. So follow his lead. Follow the lead of all of our great sponsors. Be a 2018 sponsor. The year ends on Monday. FJBUnity.org. FJBUnity.org. If you like this kind of programming, believe you me, we, we, we provide... Amazing programming, constantly. FJBUnity.org, FJBUnity.org.